Hello, and welcome to the podcast series, Ready, Set, Game, The Rhetoric of Games, a podcast created by Emory University students in David Morgan's Play, Make, Write, Think class. Over the course of the series, we will approach games as operating within the larger media ecology and attempt to diagram the competing forces at work within that landscape. In each episode, we will play and analyze a specific game with an eye toward its rhetorical situation and the role it plays within the broader medium. We'll focus on the way these games encourage players to think in order to move through them and what sorts of decisions the games force us to make. As we probe the underlying rules of game systems and speculate about what's going on underneath the hood, we'll ponder where they are taking us and to what ends. How do these games encourage certain types of problem solving and learning? What sorts of values do they promote? What sorts of new perspectives do we gain in the playing? So buckle up and come play with us. Undertale is a role-playing video game created by indie developer Toby Fox, released in 2014. As a new game, Undertale imitates the old-fashioned RPG game style. All the dialogues and the characters are in the pixel quality. The player controls a child who falls underground into the world of Monster, a large secluded region under the surface of the Earth. Separated by a magic barrier, the player is supposed to find a way out or gonna be trapped forever. On the player's journey back to the surface, he or she can meet various monsters. Some monsters might engage the player in a fight. Sounds like a conventional RPG game, right? The slogan of Undertale, the RPG game where you don't have to destroy anyone, on the other hand, points out that Undertale is actually an anti-conventional RPG game. During the fights against the monsters, the combat system involves the player navigating through many bullet hell attacks by the opponents. They can opt to pacify or subdue monsters in order to spare them instead of killing them. These choices affect the game with the dialogue, character, and story changing based on outcomes. There are four choices. Fight, Act, Item, and Mercy. It is a curious game that insinuates both probing and techniques of Super Better. Probing follows the design. There's your soul, represented by the heart icon floating about in a bullet hell shooter fashion. Traditional conventions tell you to use the typical arrow keys. By probing and moving the heart around the little box of its borders, you eventually learn a unique battling system where the heart changes colors and unlocks different powers, or in this case, handicaps. One time, the evil character, Flowey, informs the player that one can power up through little friendliness bullets, signaling the player to traditionally approach floating objects for power-ups, like those in Mario and Luigi. In doing so, these bullets inflict damage, finally revealing the key mechanic of the game, dodging. There are ways to talk to characters even during battles. There are curious probing acts like mimic, do something mysterious, or even singing, which causes unique and hilarious situations. Each situation of probing leads to a greater form of unconventional knowledge and humor, which in my experience made me more curious to explore the game's capabilities. For example, I kept petting a dog during a battle, and its neck kept growing longer and longer like a giraffe until its face was no longer visible on the screen. There's such interesting ways to show how the game can go beyond the boundaries of its mechanics compared to traditional retro games and platformers.
youngsters imply the way to spare them during the conversations. By myself, I figure out the non-harmful way to spare monsters like looks, whimsome, vegetoid, and a lot of other doggy ones without checking the guide online. For example, vegetoid uses the pun "get your green" to imply that the player can spare it by getting the green icons in the bullet hell attacking minigame. However, this kind of minigame is sometimes a little bit too stressful and anxious for me that I always fail to complete so many rounds to spare them. And、uh, the fact that sparing is sometimes more time-consuming and troublesome than simply killing the monsters makes the game more interesting later. So the player like I would just choose to fight and kill, which is a point that the producer of the game tried to criticize here. Slaughter in Undertale is so easy, as players level, LV getting higher, each attack they make is more powerful. If the player goes with the genocide ending, simply killing everyone you have ever met, he or she can defeat the final boss with only one attack. There is also a sign of breaking the fourth wall in the game. Players' communication with the character Froggis at the rune suggests that Froggis understands how the player is operating the game. Froggis informs the player of several things they can do, such as pressing F4 to get full screen and skipping the dialogue by pressing X. Not only are the side characters aware of the effect of the player. Main characters with whom you have a strong bond in the game also suggest that there's gut feeling of RPG game mechanisms like saving the file or reset the game. Toriel is a warm and parental character who did you through the rune. She's so sweet. She sometimes call you and make you pies, asking what flavor do you like. If the player is set a run after informing Toriel of their pie preference in the first round, she will guess their preference in the next round, stating it is like meeting an old friend. Knowing that characters are aware of the fourth wall, the player is getting the suggestions like try to not kill from the dialogue at the same time. While building up the sense of intimation between the player and Toriel, there's also a point where you have to leave the room and have to have a fight with her. There are two options: to kill or to spare. If you choose to kill, the true evil of the game, the Flowey, will show up and tell you that you have fallen for his trap. In order to build compassion, a unique combination of awareness and empathy is needed. To achieve this goal, Toby Fox, the creator, strived to create characters accessible past the main storyline. To convey realism in a 2D world, one was allowed to see each character's personal life. Right after the fight, for example, you could go on a date, learn how to cook spaghetti with skeletons, or even be the third wheel of a ship cannon between a talking fish and a talking dinosaur. You could also use a phone to call your monster friends after you befriend them to get some comments on the area you are in. This game utilizes this humoristic, lighthearted approach to strengthen the idea of bonds. Violence is not the means of an end, but the means of a new beginning. Fighting in this game is more a resolution between two individuals to talk it out and understand each other on a deeper level. 
For example, when Mold Small, a typical slime monster, attacks you, you have the ability to choose to jiggle with them. You are still being attacked in that bullet hell shooter game, but the sequence ends with you understanding the world in Mold Small's world even better. Or when you meet a determined night frog who claims to know his way of life, but you suddenly do something mysterious, which in turn teaches him there is more to learn. These conflicts are more like a process of duking out each other's opinions in life and reaching an understandable conclusion for both parties. Once that happens, you spare them from the battle, and it ends without anyone dead. The retro bullet-style game is a form of violence, but the bullet patterns help to establish that empathy as well. They depict each character's personality, signaling the player to decide on the ACT button what is the best course to communicate to the monster. For example, Toby Fox mentions designing Aaron, the flexing mermaid horse. His attacks are designed with biceps coming at you, and the axe decision to best get along with him is to flex back at him. The humor aspect comes in where he flexes so hard he leaves the battle. In a way, the threat passes over, leaving the player a deeper understanding that each encounter is not a battle, but a growing experience in social intelligence and compassion for others. As we continue, the game reveals many aspects that reflect our present world. That is, how the game establishes a deeper connection and responsibility to the game. It channels curiosity, social intelligence, compassion, humor, and most of all, determination. For example, love and experience points. LV always took by the player as love or level. This time actually stands for the level of violence. EXP sounds like sounds like experience. However, stands for execution points this time. So, the game producer is ironically pointing out how in many RPG games players are upgraded with violence. The more monsters they kill, the stronger the character could be. The game developer reveals the fact that the player takes unlocking the achievements or collecting all inventories more important than loving the characters in the game, even though those characters are just a random monster that the player will always choose to kill feelinglessly. This time, saving and reloading doesn't help. The killing that players have committed, especially those towards the important characters like Toriel, Saints, Papyrus, will be carved on the Steam file forever. There's no chance to reset and make up. So here, Toby Fox is reminding us to be responsible for the choice you have made, even in a game, to be empathetic and to face the outcomes from all the irresponsible steps you have ever taken. And those irresponsible steps you have made, killing innocent bystanders, are ultimately weighed by Sans, one of two skeleton brothers. It is often implied that he is aware of spatial physics, alternative worlds, and time travel. And with some irony, I mean a skull and death? Sorry. Moving forward, if the player were to kill or save the characters, Sans Workshop will have a special memorabilia of a photo taken of everyone's happily ever after. He patronizes the player at the end for killing his loved ones and for knowing of other worlds where the player did not kill them. And ultimately, in a last plea for compassion, he will fight you in an extremely difficult battle. Clearly, there have been many other worlds that sprung up from this reveal in the fandom. 
Underfell, Underswap, for example, and more. Thus, I love the interconnectedness of choice and alternate realities. Sans bears the weight of life and compassion for his friends, and that transfers over to the player with a newly awakened consciousness of responsibility and choice that affects all timelines and all worlds within the game. This was truly the most bizarre reveal of the game, after probing along and playing the different routes of pacifist and genocide out of a gamer's curiosity. My most favorite part of the game is the representation of traits and characters. It draws close ties to Jane McGonagall's idea of the quest, power-ups, and bad guys. Violence in this game is representative of post-traumatic growth. Like Sherry mentions, the game is anxiety-inducing, time-consuming, and stressful. However, the challenges that one faces in this game promotes the idea that growth and acceptance of more harder challenges later on, which allows for greater rewards and the best true ending called the pacifist ending. This is the equivalent of the determination that the game continues to remind the player of. It is a parameter that allows the player to know where they stand. The player is in control of a red heart, their soul. In fact, there's each soul that appears in the game is representative of a strength or trait. There are eight souls, with seven represented. Determination, patience, bravery, integrity, perseverance, kindness, and justice. We know this with little hints of winning a certain golf game within the game. In the true ending, these souls rescue you from the true bad guy. How you get them is from the friendships that you establish with each monster. For example, Papyrus, the first monster you may encounter, has a blue heart, representative of patience. It is shown by his blue attacks, where you would not get hurt when you do not move. Then, the power-ups. They would be the food that you buy in each area. Truly, the game makes fun of the use of currency in games. Normally, you would get money to buy things from doing quests for others or beating up monsters. But here, you can achieve all your money gains simply from conversing with your enemies. You do not level up in the game, meaning you are at level 1 at all times, and the game awards you for dodging and being a pacifist. You can't sell your items either. All of this. It is instrumental to showing that power-ups, like McGonagall shows, are for the use of the player alone. They compensate for a player's struggle and allows them to go on rather than improve their status, and that they bring instant energy, just as how a certain monster mentions that the food is converted to energy right away compared to human food that just goes to the toilet after use. A unique idea is the bad guy persisting. Like how McGonagall implies that the bad guy may reappear or persist one day. Flowey is that bad guy, forcing the player to come up with various strategies to defeat him. Ultimately, using all the souls and the allies you make overcomes him, but he still exists later on. He remembers how you played the game, whether through genocide or not, and he knows that he and all the other characters will continue to exist in the game so long as the player chooses to come back and restart everything. Ultimately, the game teaches us the ways of being human in the best possible way, the super better way. The monsters of this game, who lack a human soul, immortalize traits that we as humans wish to attain. They are more attuned to the community and to themselves with a burning compassion for a better life, escaping the dark cave sealing them. They laugh, cry, can be your best friend and a villain. 
They have loved ones and dreams. They have flaws. The game reminds us that unlike game characters, much less monsters, humans as a society have the opportunity to utilize our curiosity to examine our situations, to best use our traits in complex and dire times, and to be determined to take hold of our destinies and change for the better. And finally, choice. The game presents a situation, but you can choose how to deal with its inhabitants. It's a realistic reminder that we can handle internal strife and growth. Such an effective game packages our societal issues in an effective and humoristic way. So come along with us on a journey filled with determination and really bad skeleton puns. So that's all about Undertale. Thanks to our producer Kimberly, assistant producer Sherry, and line producer Wenyi. Hope you enjoyed our podcast. <laughs>